do want to mention um, one brief announcement. Um, there is a ministry uh, in Richmond called Hundredfold, uh, which is taken from the scripture where Jesus says, anyone who gives up wife or brother or mother or father or brothers or sisters or homes for my sake will receive a hundredfold back in this life and in the next life eternal. Uh, and um, anyway, it's a ministry that's committed to supporting and creating community for Christians who are committed to celibacy um, in Richmond. And some of, some of them are people experiencing sex attraction, others are people who don't. Um, but there are some flyers about it in the back, um, in, in the little commons area, um, and I think they're having a gathering tomorrow, is that right, Carrie, um, uh, for lunch? So if you're interested in that, you can pick up one of those back there. All right, Wes, part two. All right, well, let's uh, pray once more, please, um, if you'd bow with me. And Father, thank you for this opportunity that we have to we trust hear from you, uh, to look at Jesus, to see his love for us, to see him as crucified and risen on our behalf. I pray that we would know ourselves loved in him, I pray that we would know ourselves forgiven and cleansed and empowered uh, through him. And we ask all this in his name, amen. Well, I wanna, I wanna shift gears a bit. I, I threw a lot at you in the first lecture and I, I apologize for packing a lot in, but um, I want to shift gears now and talk about uh, not so much uh, traditional sexuality from Scripture, but how do we begin to uh, live into the kind of community that would allow us to uh, flourish in the way that I've just outlined. Um, if, if the first lecture was flying at 30,000 feet, I want to get a bit more uh, nitty-gritty, a bit more practical, and talk about what, what does it look like to care for one another? What does it look like to find friendship in the church? And um, I grew up Baptist, so I'm going to give you a three-point talk. Um, and uh, the, the first point is, is what I'm calling the discovery of friendship. The second point is the, the blessings of friendship. And uh, the third point is the pursuit of friendship. So the discovery, the blessings, and the pursuit uh, of friendship. Um, I, I realized that I was gay when I was around 14, 13, 14, 15 years old, as I mentioned. And uh, for a number of years, as I began to talk with my fellow Christians about this, uh, I started to meet once a week with one of my pastors in college. Um, I gradually got the courage to tell more of my peers. Um, and by the time I was in my mid-20s, I, I had told a handful of trusted friends. And I was very much uh, wrestling with scripture, uh, wrestling in community with how do I live my life as a, as a gay man who wants to follow Jesus. As a, as a gay man who wants to be a Christian? How do I sort this out? And uh, what I became convinced of, uh, theologically, biblically, is what I just gave you uh, in the first lecture, that, that I could either uh, live into uh, marriage, the covenant of, 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 of uh, fidelity between a man and a woman, or I could pursue celibacy. And uh, those, were, those were the two vocations that God uh, called people to, I came to believe. And so I I, 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 I thought that um, it was highly unlikely that I could enter into a, a heterosexual marriage. I, I basically am someone who has experienced zero shift. Uh, I talked about the significant shifts on the continuum of change. I've experienced no shift on the continuum of change. I'm still very, very same-sex attracted. And so getting married to a woman began to seem increasingly uh, unlikely. Now, I often say God can do whatever God wants, and, and who knows, you know, 
I mean, I, I don't want to. I don't want to script my future in advance. But I don't expect to be married. Uh, I'm not looking to be married. I'm not really praying for that anymore. God can God can give me that if He wants to, but it would take a miracle. Um, so I'm pursuing a life of celibacy. Uh, I'm pursuing a life of intentional uh, singleness uh, without sex, and I'm seeking to do that in a way that is is uh, healthy. I, I want to flourish. I want to I want to grow in Christ. I want to grow as a human being. I want to be uh, someone who can uh, both know myself loved and also pour out love. Uh, for others in the body of Christ. And, and uh, I, you know, in my 20s, I remember sitting in my apartment. Um, I was in grad school uh, in England at the time, just wrestling with profound loneliness um, and just wondering, you know, I've been told all my life that the way to, to flourish as a human being is you meet someone that you romantically fall in love with and you get married to them. And that was really the, the vision of a happy future that I had. I mean, my parents um, were Christians when I was growing up. They did not have a perfect marriage, but they, they loved each other. And uh, they're still married and, and uh, you know, still imperfect, but, but it's, a, it's a good marriage. They, they, they care for one another. And I remember as a kid, you know, kind of subconsciously thinking, well, that's going to be me one day. You know, I, I'll, I'll meet a spouse when I go off to a Christian college. I'll, I'll get married. I'll have kids. I'll, I'll uh, have a house. I'll have a dog. I'll have a picket fence. You know, that's, that's the future. And um, so I, I didn't know, you know, here I am in my 20s now. This is not looking like my future. And I didn't know what it looked like to, to find the end of loneliness. And I was, I was profoundly wrestling with this sense of, you know, is love passing me by? Uh, if I can't um, enter into marriage, am I just doomed to a life of, of feeling isolated, feeling alienated, feeling alone? And I know that's not unique to gay people. Uh, I know that there are many, many heterosexual people, perhaps in this room, who are wrestling with that and, and feel that as an urgent question. Uh, in their lives. And, and um, I, I have always been a, a reader. I am a big nerd, uh, and I, I just love reading. And, and um, often when I'm wrestling with a personal problem, I'm, I'm, I'm doing that through reading. I'm doing that through reading books or articles. And, and uh, in God's providence, one of, the, one of the things I started reading was a very strange uh, blog. Um, uh, Eve, if you're listening to this, uh, it is a strange blog. But Eve, Eve Tushnet, my friend, who who uh, lives in Washington, D.C. now. Um, she identifies as a queer uh, Catholic uh, woman who is, who is living a life of celibacy. Um, uh, Eve had a blog, uh, and the tagline of the blog, this will tell you how quirky Eve is, uh, conservatism reborn in twisted sisterhood was the, was the, was the tagline for the, for the blog. It's a very, very odd, quirky blog, but Eve is just a wonderful writer and a delightful human being. She was raised in a very secular uh, home, came out when she was about 13, became an activist in her, in her school, her middle school and high school. And the last thing she expected happened to her when she went off to Yale. She met Christ and became a, a Roman Catholic. And she said, you know, I, I didn't know what I should think about my sexual life, but I realized the Catholic Church teaches, you know, here's marriage and here's celibacy. Those are the two options. And she said, I guess I'll have to be celibate because I really love Jesus and I want the Eucharist. Uh, and and she, she has spent, uh, she spent a lot of her life trying to figure out, you know, what she thinks about things. But, but um, so, so this blog, I discovered... Uh, and started reading it. And, and you know, my, my experience is very different. I grew up in a small southern town, Southern Baptist boy. Uh, uh, didn't, didn't know any other gay activists as far as I knew. Um, was certainly not an activist myself. Uh, we had very different experiences. But I found that Eve was, was articulating things that I felt and that I wondered about. And I remember coming across a blog post where she wrote this. 
She says, I think, and this was probably around 2007 uh, that she wrote this when I, when I read it, 2007, 2008. I think very often we seek, or we should seek, to transform what Maggie Gallagher once called your mind because I love you relationships into I love you because you're mine relationships. My actual experience, Eve says, of friendship very strongly suggests a need and a desire for friendships to become, over time, understood as given. And I remember reading that and closing the computer and thinking, she has just put her finger on something that I deeply, deeply feel, which is that I have a lot of relationships in which I feel very loved, but I have precious few relationships where I feel like the love is permanent. And that's what marriage seems to hold out, that you could publicly vow that when things get bad, if one of you gets sick, if one of you becomes you know, incapacitated, if, you, if one of you becomes dirt poor, you're not leaving. That's what the vows say, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. That's what it felt like I didn't have. And here is Eve saying in this post that there's an experience. There's an experience she's had. Uh, there's an experience that many people have. Maggie Gallagher, who's a heterosexual woman, writes about this, where we feel that we want our friendships to become not just something that we enjoy while the going is good, not just fair-weather friendships, but somehow friendships that become, over time, understood as given. They're just a given. You're stuck with them. Uh, my, my housemate, Aiden, um, talks about growing up in Alaska. He grew up in Nome, Alaska, where the Iditarod dog race ends, you know, a tiny little town in the northwest uh, part of Alaska. Um, uh, you actually have to fly in in the winter. You can't, you can't get there by road. But, you know, he has these childhood friends, and he said, these are, these are family. I mean, I may wish I could get away from these guys uh, at some point. You know, I may wish I could uh, escape some of, the, some of the difficulties, but these, these are given. These are with me for life. And we have that hunger. We have that longing. And that, reading that post by Eve set me on a, a, a long journey of reading and learning. And, and what I discovered, I did not know uh, before I started off on this journey. What I discovered is that Christianity throughout the centuries has, has developed a very strong, robust, serious understanding of friendship that makes our culture of friendship look anemic by comparison. Um, you know, we... we have started using uh, friend as a casual verb, thanks to Facebook. You know, I friend you, or I unfriend you. Uh, you know, or my, my friend is someone that I might see every couple months, and you know, I don't really know what's going on in his or her life. Uh, Christianity has understood friendship to be something much more profound than that, or at least something that can be much more profound than that. Uh, friendship can be permanent. Friendship can be faithful. Friendship can be vowed, even. Um, and, and I just want to tell you briefly uh, uh, about three of my heroes um, as I talk about my, the first point here, the discovery of friendship uh, that my reading led me into. Um, that, that blog post by Eve was sort of the gateway drug that led me into uh, a lot of discovery about friendship. And I discovered, for example, Aelred of Riveau. What a name, right? Uh, Aelred was a 12th century monk in the northeast of England. And uh, he became the abbot of a monastery there, Riveau Abbey. And Aylred was someone who most historians think he probably experienced same-sex desire himself. He, he talked about coming to Christ out of a sexually uh, promiscuous background, and, and many scholars think it was probably um, uh, sexual liaisons with men that he was having. And he committed his life to the monastery, 
And he ended up writing a book um, that to this day is one of the only books from church history that is specifically about friendship. Uh, the title of the book is Spiritual Friendship. You can still get it. It's still in print uh, on Amazon. I stole the title of my book from Aylred. But uh, Aylred writes things like this in, in his book. He says, See how far love between friends should extend, namely that they be willing to die for one another. And that was like a light bulb going off for me because I thought that was the kind of thing you only said in a romantic relationship. I thought, that was the only, I thought that was the kind of thing you only said in a marriage. That's where you find that kind of fidelity. But here's Aylred saying, friendship is such a relationship, uh, such a deep relationship, that you would even be willing to lay down your life for the friend. Uh, that's the kind of commitment we're talking about. That's the kind of camaraderie uh, we're talking about. I also discovered people like Pavel Florensky, a very eccentric uh, Russian Orthodox uh, mathematical and philosophical genius. He was also a theologian uh, in, his, in his night hours. Um, and and Florensky, uh, very interestingly, I mean, he talks about friendship in the same way Elred does. You know, Elred's in the 12th century, here's Florensky in the 20th century. And Florensky actually uses a fascinating metaphor to talk about friendship. He says, friendship is the molecular bond of the church. Um, if we think of the church, it's not just an aggregate of individuals, isolated individuals. If you, if you pull off the, the top layer of the church and look, look underneath and see what's really there, you'll find molecular bonds of friendship. You'll find pairs of friends holding the whole thing together. And uh, Florensky says that's what we need to be cultivating. That's what we need to be celebrating in the church, that we are linked to one another, uh, not just as a mass of, of individuals, but we're linked in these, in these bonds that then link up with other bonds, and, and it forms the whole organism. I also discovered people like uh, John Henry Newman. Uh, Newman argued that friendship, like Aylred, like Florensky, friendship was something to celebrate. Friendship was something to honor. And Newman added, Friendship is something that need not compete with your love for the world. Many Christians throughout history uh, speak of friendship as something that is, is, is dangerous because it can draw you away into a little clique by yourself, and it can cause you to neglect you know, loving your neighbor or loving your enemy, loving the world. And Newman said, on the contrary, friendship is actually something that can form in you the habits and the virtues and the practices of love so that you can be better prepared to love the world. Listen to how he says this. He says, now I shall here maintain, this is one of his sermons. He actually preached a sermon on friendship. Uh, Newman says, I shall here maintain with our Savior's example before me. He's thinking of John's gospel where Jesus is portrayed as a friend. Jesus is portrayed as someone who had his three, Peter, James, and John, but also his uniquely close relationships with, with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Jesus was a friend. He says, with that pattern, with that example before me, I shall maintain that the best preparation for loving the world at large and loving it duly and wisely is to cultivate an intimate friendship and affection towards those who are immediately about us. What he's arguing is that uh, if you want to become the kind of person who, when the moment comes, can actually love your enemy with real love, if you want to become the kind of person who can really genuinely love the stranger, love one who is unlike you, love a refugee, then you need to look at the people that God has given you in your immediate circle, and you need to allow 
uh, those relationships to be important to you. You need to invest in those relationships. You need to care about your friendship. And that becomes a kind of school of virtue that can shape you into a possible friend for others. Uh, powerful vision, because Newman is there setting himself against any notion that friendship is somehow a lesser love. Uh, sometimes Christians have said really uh, bad things about friendship because they feel like it's somehow in competition with other forms of Christian love. And Newman says, no, friendship can be a place where we actually learn to love. Uh, if marriage is a place where, where selfishness can begin to be um, uh, worked against, where people can unlearn some of the habits of selfishness and can learn to lay down their lives for another person so that they can then in turn go on and love others, friendship can be the same kind of thing. Friendship can be a sanctifying presence in someone's life by which we begin to be shaped into loving people. Uh, so this was, this was a discovery for me, friends. This was a radical discovery. I suddenly felt like I was beginning to have some idea of a script for how my future might go. Uh, suddenly, uh, the future wasn't looking quite so blank. Uh, I've talked to so many gay uh, and lesbian friends of mine who say, you know, when they come to the church asking about what their possible future is in the church, they just meet a, a great white space, just a blank. Uh, there's, no, there's no vision there. Uh, I guess you could pursue celibacy, but who knows how to do that? You know, uh, what, is, what is the future? And suddenly I begin to, to, to see some marks on that blank page, to see some arrows that might point me in a hopeful future. Perhaps, just perhaps, Friendship could be something that I was being called to. Friendship could be something that I was gifted for, uh, that I could pursue, that could be honored, uh, that could be celebrated, that actually had a Christian history, a Christian pedigree behind it, that could, that could, that could lend it some, some heft uh, in my life. And, and, and that set me off on a, on a trajectory that ultimately led me to write my own book about this called Spiritual Friendship. Well, secondly, uh, what about the blessings of it? Uh, what, is it what, what good does it do? Um, how, does it, how does it benefit the church? How does it shape gay Christian lives or, or other single Christian lives or, or, or bisexual or heterosexual Christian lives? What does friendship do for us? How does it shape us? How does it form us? Um, I want to talk about this under, under three headings. I want to talk about how, mari uh, how, how marriage is blessed by friendship. I want to talk about how singleness is blessed by friendship, and I want to talk about how how um, the experience of, of same-sex attraction can be helped by by friendship. Uh, so, marriage first. Marriage, I think, as I said earlier, is not just about two people. Uh, it is. It's a covenant between two people. It's a it's a promise for life between two people. But in God's economy, it's not only about those two. It's supposed to open the couple outwards. It's supposed to be a a site of hospitality. It's supposed to be something that, that is capable of welcoming in uh, the stranger. Uh, listen to how Rodney Clapp, Rodney Clapp is a, a writer for the Christian Century and a, and a publisher, a really fine Christian writer. But Rodney Clapp says this about marriage and, and children. He says, Christian uh, parenthood is practice in hospitality, in, welcome, in the welcoming and support of strangers. Welcoming the strangers who are our children, we learn a little about being out of control, about the possibility of surprise and so of hope, about how strange we ourselves are. <laughs> moment by mundane moment, dealing with rebellion, hosting birthday parties, struggling to understand exactly what a toddler has dreamed and been frightened by in the night, 
we pick up skills in patience, empathy, generosity, forgiveness. And all of these, Clapp says, are transferable skills. Skills we can and must use to welcome other strangers besides our children. We become better equipped to open ourselves to strangers, especially to those strangers who are not our children, but our brothers and sisters in Christ. What I think Clapp is trying to put his finger on there is that marriage isn't just about two. It isn't about withdrawal into a a kind of romantic paradise. It's about pushing the couple back out into the world. We celebrate a marriage in church. We pray for it. We pledge to stand by it and strengthen it and and support it. And we launch it back into the world where it can be a, a place of welcoming in strangers, welcoming in children, but welcoming in other strangers as well. And friendship, recovering a vision of spiritual friendship, can be a reminder to married couples of this fact about marriage. Marriage isn't just about celebrating the discovery, uh, the life-changing discovery of romantic love, as, as dizzying as that can be. But marriage is about, uh, is about the long road of becoming a, a, a tiny nucleus of hospitality, uh, a tiny nucleus in which you can be part of building up the kingdom of God, building up the body of Christ by giving yourself out in service uh, to others. Um, Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 7 about marriage, uh, possibly, you know, uh, making the couple more concerned about the things of the world. That's, that's partly true, right? But the other, the other half of that is Paul also talks about marriage in Ephesians 5 as a sign to the world of Christ's love for the church. Marriage is not just about the couple. Marriage is about the world. Marriage is about the good of community. And friendship, recovering a vision of friendship, can remind married couples of this. Uh, friendship is one of those wonderful blessings that anyone can practice regardless of marital status. It's good for single people like me, but it's good for married couples as well. Uh, I, have a, I have a friend who, um, he and his wife are, are, are very much um, uh, in love with one another, but they, they, they refuse to say that they are each other's best friends because they don't want to give the impression that they are all that each other needs. Uh, they don't want to say that they're everything to each other. Um, they, can, they can love each other. In fact, they've committed to loving each other for the, till death do us part, but that doesn't mean that they can meet all of one another's needs. That doesn't mean that they can withdraw and be a sort of isolated unit. No, they are called to, to give of themselves in the church, to, to bless their community uh, with their life. I, I love the way Gene Rogers puts this. He says, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding feast. Love not only desires an other, love not only desires the beloved, the spouse, love also desires a witness, a third, For this reason, human lovers carve hearts with initials into tree trunks and spray paint declarations on highway bridges. And then Rogers directs our attention to God himself. The love that is internal to God's own life has an other, the Son, and does not lack for a third either, the Spirit, to witness, bless, and celebrate it. In a wedding, third parties celebrate, witness, bless, testify to, and delight in the love of two. And I would add, not only do they celebrate and delight and testify to this love of the couple, but they draw the couple out of themselves to give of themselves in the community. That's what friendship can mean uh, in marriage. I've seen this in my life. I, I, I moved to, to England for grad school, and I didn't know anyone. Uh, I was nervous about finding community, and, 
And, um, you know, a lot of my single friends said, well, why don't you just go look for a bunch of other single people to hang out with? And I, I did some, you know, I mean, single people are, are fun to hang out with. But I found myself really drawn into the hospitality of a couple of, of marriages uh, in the church. My, my pastor and his wife were um, famously hospitable. They, they made sure that uh, every Sunday they had people over for a long British lunch. Uh, British lunches, I learned, are much longer than American uh, lunches tend to be, and, and, and I was drawn into this. Um, I was drawn into the circle of their hospitality, and there was, there was another couple who became my next-door neighbors who were also part of the church, and, and, and their marriage became a kind of haven for me as a single person. And uh, I now share a home with a married couple and their daughter, and, 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 and their marriage, they've told me, they feel that it's better for me being there, which, which is an honor for me to hear. Uh, it's a reminder to them that their, their love isn't only for themselves. Their love is to give away. Their love is to be a shelter for those who are lonely and a shelter for those who, who need hospitality. Well, friendship doesn't just help in marriage. I think it also helps in singleness. Uh, I think it profoundly helps in singleness. And, and every single Christian I've talked to uh, either hungers for friendship, they know they need it, or they find that friendship is one of the greatest gifts that they have, uh, or both. <laughs> in my case, there's both the, the, the longing for deeper friendship and the, and the gratitude for the friendships I have. But, but friendship can help in singleness in all kinds of ways. Singles need to be reminded that they have a capacity. We have a capacity for love. That our loves are honorable, even if they aren't married. Um, this is something I think we single people need you as the church to hear us say. Um, please ask us about our friendships. Please celebrate our friendships. Please honor our friendships. I have a, a single friend who, um, uh, she, when she goes home to her uh, family Thanksgiving gathering, she will often bring another single friend. Um, and her family will always make sure that that friend is part of the family Thanksgiving photo that then gets framed and hung on the wall. It's an honoring of her friendship. It's a recognition that friendship to her is a profound relationship. It's not a happy-go-lucky, fair-weather relationship. It's something that matters to her. It's something that's worthy of a photograph. It's something that's worthy of a banquet, worthy of celebration. Uh, singles need to be reminded of this. We need to be reminded that we're not second-class citizens because we're not married, or that we're not somehow missing out on a, on, a, on a sanctifying virtue because we're not married. We actually have precisely in our singleness and through our singleness the capacity to love and be loved. I mean, that's Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 7, right? Is that there's a, there's a freedom for love. There's a freedom for service to God and service to others that singleness gives. And friendship is a reminder of that. Friendship is a tangible sign of the fact that we are lovers. Uh, we, we may not be uh, giving ourselves uh, sexually away to someone. Indeed, we ought not to do that if we're Christians. But we are called to love uh, others. Singles need to be reminded, secondly, that there is a place to invest their love. Um, my friend Eve, who I mentioned a moment ago, she says, you know, you not only need, if you're a single person, to know who to call when you get sick and who you can count on to bring you soup, but you need to know that there's a place for you to, to, to bring soup. There's a place for you to, to go and, and serve if, if you have this, this call, as we all do, this call to give your, your life and your love away. Um, one, of the, one of the things people don't think about enough in the church, I think, is that not only should singles have a ministry that they receive, but singles need a ministry that they are called to. 
And uh, one of my, I, I confess I don't love uh, singles ministries, although this hundredfold ministry sounds awesome. I would probably be part of that if I was here in Richmond. Uh, so I do encourage you, as Corey said, that, to check out one of those uh, flyers. I, I'm, I actually want to meet whoever's part of that. So if, you, if you're part of that, please come find me uh, after this, because it sounds like a fantastic ministry. But, but I think one of the mistakes that we can make when we set up singles ministries in churches is that we think of this as something that the church offers to single people. And indeed, single people do need to be cared for, they need to be loved, they need to be nurtured and welcomed and shown hospitality, but single people also need to be drawn out. Single people need to be reminded, you have a ministry, not just that you are a ministry, but you have gifts that God has given you. You have gifts to offer. You need to be on the committees alongside uh, married people. You need to be offering your gifts uh, alongside married people at the church potluck or at, at, the, at the vestry meeting or, or wherever else. So you, you have a calling. You have gifts. Uh, you have uh, capacities to serve and love that need to be nurtured and drawn out. And thirdly, I think friendship can also remind singles that sex is not the most important way that human beings give and receive love. And even marriages, if they're healthy, often recognize this, don't they? Uh, C.S. Lewis talks in his book, uh, The Four Loves, um, that one of the signs of a healthy marriage is that marriage isn't just about the giddiness of romance. It, it's about friendship. Uh, it's about the spouses uh, laying down their lives for one another in friendship. Um, Ronald Rollheiser, a, a Catholic priest, a celibate man himself, uh, he writes very poignantly. He says, in our culture's view, in our contemporary culture's view, a view that we all have generally interiorized and made our own, to love means to make love, to be a lover. Platonic heterosexual friendship is seen as too incomplete, too empty, or as simply unrealistic. When to love someone means to make love to that someone, then it becomes hard to trust that simple friendship might be more life-giving than having sex. Celibate friendships can be an important way to keep alive, to keep visible and in the flesh that part of the incarnation which tells us that when one is speaking of love, the human heart is the central organ. I love that. Friendship can be a way of, of when we practice it, when we live into it, when we receive it as a gift, it can be a way of reminding single people that the central organ of love is the human heart. And there is no um, deficiency or diminishment in the love that single people can bring into the life of the church. I mean, we have to say that, right, if we're Christians? Because we believe that Jesus Christ lived his whole life without sex and was the most loving, the most fully vital and, and dynamic human being who's ever lived. Jesus is the model of what true humanity looks like. I love that moment in, in John's gospel when, when Pilate, uh, Pontius Pilate, brings Jesus out at his trial and he says, behold the man. And as, as so often is the case in John's gospel, there's deep irony in that. Because what Pilate means is simply, here's, here's the guy. Here's the candidate. But what he says is actually deeper than what he knows. Behold the man, capital M. Behold the human being. Behold the one who is the true human being. Behold the one who is the image of God that Adam never could have been, that Adam should have been but failed to be. 
behold the one who fulfills that wonderful vision of Psalm 8, of, of the Son of Man ruling and reigning as God's viceroy on earth. This is him. That's Jesus Christ. And he lived his entire life as a celibate man. He lived without sex. And he was not deficient in love for that reason. Singles need to be reminded of that. We need to be told that over and over. And friendship, nurturing friendship, celebrating friendship, cultivating friendship can be a way to keep that dream alive, to keep that vision alive in the church. Well, next, uh, friendship blesses marriage. Friendship blesses singles. I think friendships can specifically bless those of us who are same-sex attracted, those of us who are gay or lesbian. And I don't, I don't want to claim that friendship is some kind of easy solution for our loneliness. In fact, I think friendship can often make loneliness worse. That's sometimes been my experience. Um, as, I, as I feel called to friendship and as I actually find deep, heart-committed, covenant kinds of friends, uh, that can actually increase my longing for intimacy. It can actually make loneliness more poignant more acute in certain ways, just like, just like I think marriage can in many ways increase loneliness. So we're not, we're not talking about friendship as some kind of band-aid, some kind of solution for gay pain or gay loneliness. But friendship can, I think, be held out in the church as one possible way that same-sex attracted Christians are called to shine as lights in the world for Christ. There's a really profound letter, I think it's profound, that C.S. Lewis uh, wrote um, uh, about homosexuality. Um, fascinating backstory to the letter. So he wrote it to a guy called Sheldon Van Auken. Um, some of you will know his book, A Severe Mercy. Has anybody read A Severe Mercy? Uh, yeah, a handful of you. Um, so Sheldon Van Auken was a, was a hopeless romantic. Um, he was one of these uh, Anglophiles who are annoying. You know, they're, they're so annoyed. Uh, they're so, uh, uh, they're so uh, enthralled with Oxford and the spires of England. And so he, he went over there with his wife, and, and they described themselves as happy pagans. You know, they just wanted to lap up all the, all the cultural richness of England and enjoy their, their, uh, their, their freedom from any constraints. And uh, lo and behold, the unthinkable happens, and, and Sheldon's wife becomes a Christian. And it ruins this, this uh, what they call their, their, their shining barrier where they share everything together. And now there's a, now there's a breach there. And, and Sheldon finds himself, I mean, I won't spoil the whole book for you, but uh, Sheldon finds himself becoming a Christian as well. And, and he, 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 he befriends C.S. Lewis. And uh, he and his wife eventually moved back. I think they moved to, did they move to Richmond? They, they moved to Virginia. Um, but they, they, they came back to Virginia after this sojourn in Oxford, brand new Christians, and they start leading a Bible study, and, and a lot of the people who start showing up to attend the Bible study are gay. And Sheldon says, you know, I'm a new Christian. I don't know what to tell them. They're asking me how to live their, their Christian lives. And so he writes to Lewis, like anyone would do, uh, if you're friends with C.S. Lewis. And, 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 he, and, he asks, and he asks Lewis, you know, what should I, what should I think about this? And, and Lewis, Lewis writes back, um, and, and I mean, this was written in 1954 or something like that. So the language is dated. So if, if, you're, if, you're, um, if you're bothered by the language, I understand, I get it, but, but try to hear what he's, what he's saying here. Um, he writes back to Van Auken, he says, our speculations on the cause of the abnormality are not what matters. I think the reason Lewis calls it an abnormality is, is, is not simply because um, people like me are a minority in the population, but I think he's thinking theologically. It's an abnormality in terms of what God intended. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of symptom of the fall 
uh, this, this experience of same-sex desire. But he says our speculations on the cause are not what matters, and we must be content with ignorance. Uh, just parenthesis there. I think Lewis was way ahead of his time uh, because more and more um, researchers are telling us we really don't know the cause of this. We'd like to think we do. And conservative evangelical Christians have spent so many years telling people like me that the real cause is some sort of um, absentee father and, and overbearing mother. And we've done real damage to people by trying to shoehorn uh, all their stories into that one-size-fits-all paradigm for the origins of same-sex attraction. And it just doesn't work all the time. You know, I didn't have an absentee father and an overbearing mother, so there's, there's, there's mystery about the causes of why some people are gay and why some people are straight. We really don't know, and Lewis acknowledges that. And then he, and then he invites a comparison. He invites a comparison uh, with John chapter 9. He says, the disciples of Jesus were not told why, in terms of efficient cause, the man was born blind. They were only told the final cause, that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Remember, the disciples really wanted Jesus to say, why, did, why was this guy born blind? Was it that he sinned or his mother sinned? You know, what's, what's the explanation here? And Jesus doesn't go there. He says, what, what I can tell you is that this blindness, this condition that there's really no explanation for, can become the occasion for God to show his glory in this man's life. And that's what happens. Jesus heals him. Lewis goes on. This story in John 9 suggests that in homosexuality, as in every other tribulation, those works of God can be made manifest. Every disability conceals a vocation. Uh, Lewis is thinking of homosexuality as a disability in the theological sense. It's, it's, it's something that we Many of us would say we never chose. We simply found ourselves experiencing it. But theologically, it's a, it's a sign of, of human fallenness. It's a sign that we're born into a world that's been, that's been misdirected, misshapen by sin. It's a, it's, a, it's a disability, but it conceals, it contains, it hides a calling. It hides a vocation, if only we can find it, which will turn the necessity to glorious gain. And then Lewis uh, says to Sheldon Van Alken, he says this. He says, I knew a certain pious uh, homosexual man who believed that his necessity, his, his sexual orientation, could be turned to spiritual gain. He believed that there were certain kinds of sympathy and understanding, a certain social role which only he could play. I am really moved by that. Lewis, Lewis is writing to Sheldon Van Alken and saying, these gay and lesbian people who are coming to your Bible study, can you encourage them to think of their homosexuality as in some way concealing for them a calling, concealing for them a role that only they can play in the church, that they have a gift. They are a gift. They are a gift that can be poured out for the sake of the body of Christ. They have a role that only they can play. And for some, for many perhaps, for me certainly, friendship has become that calling. Friendship has become that role that I can play, 
that's the gift that I can offer in the body of Christ. I can be a friend. I'm, I'm choosing to live without marriage. I'm choosing to live without sex. But that does not mean I'm condemned to loneliness. It doesn't mean I'm condemned to isolation. I can actually be a friend in the church. And I can cultivate friendship. I can speak on behalf of friendship. I can be part of renewing friendship and celebrating friendship in the life of the church. I think friendship in all those ways can bless all of us. If we rediscover it, it can bless marriages, it can bless single people, it can specifically bless same-sex attracted people. Well, finally, how do we get it? How do we pursue it? And I'm, I'm going to be brief here because I think this is actually a question that's better talked about in community because I want to hear from you how, how, how you've pursued it, how you think you could pursue it in your own context. But I want to offer a few just brief suggestions about how we might become more and more the kinds of communities, the kinds of churches that will pursue friendship and nurture friendship. Um, if you've read my spiritual friendship book, you know I have uh, some ideas in the final chapter uh, about how we might go about doing this, but let me just share a few of them with you. I think the first thing I would say is we need to become better about talking specifically about our need for it. Not everybody's need for friendship looks the same. Uh, that's something I learned when I started writing on this and speaking on this, is my need for friendship is very much, um, you know, I, I, need, I need friends who are not only a thousand miles away, who I know love me very, very deeply. Uh, I'm blessed with a handful of those friends. They're like family to me. But I need specific kinds of friendship that are, that are in the day-to-day -day mundane with me. I need the kind of friend who, when something funny happens on my way to the grocery store, or in the hallway at work, I can call that friend immediately and, and tell that story and, and laugh with them about it. I need a friend who I can count on uh, to, to run to the store for me when I'm sick in bed and can't get up and they can bring me a, a, you know, some chicken soup and, and some orange juice or something like this. You know, that, that's the kind of need that I have as a single person. That's the kind of friendship I'm craving. I need friendship that not only involves, you know, uh, theological conversation, because I am a nerd, as I said, but I need, I need friends that just sort of know me in my, in my more boring moments, when I'm not doing something like this, when I don't want to be Wes Hill, the author, you know, when I just want to be uh, the person who watches a movie with someone. That's, that's my need. I think we need to become better at naming these sorts of needs. When I first started talking about this, I was, I was talking about friendship with a lot of uh, my female friends who were young mothers, and they said, you know, you would not believe the hunger for friendship we have. As we're, as we're at home with these creatures that can't, can't uh, you know, speak to us, uh, that, that can't engage us, uh, we, we, we feel that we need friendship. We need to be able to talk about these experiences of parenthood with others. We need, we need a conversation that doesn't involve the word diaper every other sentence. You know, we, 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 need, we need this kind of friendship. And I think there are highly particular longings for friendship that exist in a room like this. And I think the first thing I would hope, the first thing I would encourage is that we become more specific about naming our particular longings for friendship. Secondly, I think we should look around at where we're already invested and work to strengthen those relationships. I, I am someone who really struggles with this. I'm, I'm sort of a hopeless romantic, and I keep thinking the next best thing is going to be around the corner. You know, so I keep thinking, you know, is this going to be the year that I meet that, that, that friend who has this particular hobby that I've never met another friend who has that hobby? And it, it can be so easy for me to start living in this, this fairy tale world of, of, you know, idealizing friendship and looking for the next best thing right around the corner. But what would happen if I, if I looked around at the people that God has, has called me to live with day in, day out, right now? My housemates, my colleagues, 
my, 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 dear, my dear friend at work, Don. You know, these are the friends that God has, to use John Henry Newman's words, put immediately about me. These are the relationships that could, in fact, become the seeds of deeper friendships, deeper spiritual friendships. Uh, invest in those. Uh, pursue those. Repair those if necessary. Uh, look for ways to, to strengthen those bonds that you're already in and, and see what God might do. Uh, thirdly, invest yourself in some pursuit. Um, I, I, because I've written on friendship, I get a lot of emails. I get a lot of um, uh, people who come up to me at events like this and say, you know, I love what you say about friendship, but how do I find friends? And, um, you know, one of, the, one of the answers to that is, is from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Four Loves on Friendship, he says, the first condition of having friends is to want something other than friendship. Um, the first condition of having friends is to be invested in some pursuit, be invested in some cause, some mission, some hobby. Um, some of the best friendships I've found have not come from me sort of pursuing friendship per se. They've been, you know, me pursuing some interest, some passion, some, some calling, and then lo and behold, I find someone else is pursuing that same hobby, that same passion, that same calling. And as we travel that road together, a relationship develops. And Lewis says, that, you know, friendship is all about not so much gazing into one another's faces, which is sort of an image of romantic love, uh, at least the early days of romantic love. Uh, uh, but but friendship, friendship is about journeying together. It's about, it's about standing shoulder to shoulder, invested in some common pursuit. Um, so the first condition of having friends is to want something other than friends. And, and I would say, you know, I, I know that many people have uh, friendship wounds. We, 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 we wrestle with loneliness. We wrestle with the fact that we've looked for friends and friends have let us down. Or we've come to church open for friendship and we haven't found any. But I would say, um, if you can, um, you know, look for that place, that, that cause that you, could, that you could invest yourself in. Look for that, that mission outreach uh, that you could sign up for. And chances are, those are the places where you might find the spark of friendship being kindled. Because it's as you look outside yourself, it's as you even look outside of friendship, as you look at what God's calling you to do, as you look at what you enjoy doing. Um, I, I had dinner last night with Kevin, who's a bird watcher. And my guess, we didn't talk about this, but my guess is you've found friends through bird watching. Because when we invest ourselves in those kind of passions, in those kind of pursuits, we find fellow travelers. And those fellow travelers can become companions on the way. Uh, fourthly, I think we ought to look, this may be a bit controversial, but I think we ought to look for ways to celebrate and acknowledge and pray for friendships publicly or even semi-publicly. Um, I, I always get a kick out of the fact that my, my, my tradition, I'm an Anglican and we're kind of crazy, but we do, we do um, blessings of the pets on St. Francis Day in October. You know, we, we pray for our animals and, and we, we do house blessings. I had a priest come to my house and, and, and sprinkle holy water in the rooms and pray God's blessing on my house that it would be a place of hospitality, but we don't do that for friendship. You know, we don't have friendship blessings in our church, shouldn't we? Couldn't we? Um, what would it mean to, to sort of acknowledge and honor friendship publicly? Um, when, my, when my housemates, um, Aiden and Mel, and I decided that we would share a house, we actually wanted to do this. We wanted to have a blessing of our friendship, not because we were ready to sign up to a lifetime of living together. We weren't quite sure about that. Uh, but but we, we, we wanted somehow to say, this isn't just a sort of private 
temporary arrangement that, that, that we're doing just for the convenience of it. We're not just housemates. We're actually friends. We're Christian friends. And we want our friendship to be something that not only blesses us, not only fills us up with love, but that actually you know, is a springboard to hospitality. So we asked a, a minister friend of ours, who, she's one of my colleagues at, at the seminary, uh, we asked her to, to come over and, and, and she, she, she wrote a, a prayer of blessing for our friendship. And she prayed that over us and we, we, we took the Eucharist together and we sang a hymn. And you know, we had a handful of other friends who came to witness this and to pray for us and to bless this. That kind of thing I would love to see being more common. I would love to see us looking for ways to uh, not only publicly acknowledge the significance of, of marriage, not only publicly acknowledge the significance of parenting as we baptize children or, or dedicate children, but could we in some way, in some small sphere, somehow find a way to pray for, to bless, to acknowledge, to celebrate friendship? Um, I, I know there are, there are certain groups of friends that already do this in certain ways, I think godparenthood is one way of doing this. Uh, we have that in my tradition. But I, I know friends who, you know, will, will set aside a week, a year for friend anniversaries, you know, for, for friendship trips. I mean, this should happen more often. This should be par for the course. This should be part of the fabric of our lives together. And then finally, uh, perhaps most, most difficult, most dangerous, what would it mean for us as Christians to try as much as possible if it's God's call on our lives, to resist the allure of constant mobility and autonomy. Um, I think you live, my, my guess is you live in a very mobile part of the country. I, I, I think this, this particular area of Virginia, D.C., uh, this, this area, it's quite mobile. Mine, mine is too. I live in the academic world, and it's a revolving door. People are in and out of my life all the time. And, um, you know, I have, I have entertained my own thoughts of, you know, what, where could the next best job be? You know, where, where might be the next uh, position that I, could, that I could climb the ladder towards? And I have, I have lately begun to wonder, could that be one of, in fact, the, the profound enemies of friendship in our culture? The constant willingness to uproot. Uh, I, I, don't, don't misunderstand me. I think that God does call some of us to uproot. I think you can't read the New Testament and read the life of Paul and not think that God calls some people to be mobile. St. Paul was one of the most mobile people ever. Uh, he, he moved and moved and moved and moved. Um, so God certainly calls many of us to do that. But I wonder if God might be calling more of us than we think to put down roots, to take uh, a version of the Benedictine vow of stability and plant ourselves in a particular community for the long haul, plant ourselves in a certain small group for the long haul, even when the people get annoying even when the neighborhood gets annoying, even when the church gets annoying, just to stay put and see what kind of gifts might be available for those who, who endure, for those who stay, for those who linger. Um, mobility can, can hurt friendship. Uh, thankfully, I'm, I'm blessed with certain friendships uh, that have endured over the miles. I've had to move away from very, very dear friends, and in God's kindness, we are able to pick up where we left off when we get back together. But those are, those are precious friendships. And, and I wonder if, if, um, if, in fact, God might be calling me to, to resist the allure of mobility, to resist the allure of, of constant movement and to stay, to stay for my friends, to stay for my housemates, to perhaps turn down the next prestigious possibility, uh, to say no to the constant desire to, to, 
explore new territory and to stay and to see what blessings might be felt in staying. So um, I want to I want to end there. Uh, there's a lot we could say. There are there are probably 12 more uh, things we could do to cultivate friendship. But I think I think this is something best talked about with others. So uh, Corey, if you want to come back up, and and I think it'd be great just to hear uh, from you. How 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 might we begin to cultivate uh, these kind of friendships? So thank you, thank you so much. <laughs> Nelson, Tracy, can you bring Nelson to the mic? Thank you so much, Wes. <clears throat> I wondered about this question of introducing language of commitment or covenant in friendships. And I can think of my own, of my own experience. I have uh, a handful of men mm. that have been lifelong friends for me. And we will regularly say to each other, I love you. Mm. And I think we mean by that, that we have feelings of affection for each other. And I also think we mean we're committed to each other. But I find, and I feel like we would all, we would say we're committed for life. And I'm struck by what you said about marriage. One of the things that marriage seems to hold out is you, you express this covenant in the vow, but then you get from that the promise of lifelong friendship. Yeah. And I experience in these relationships with a couple of guys in particular that I consider lifelong friends that when we get to the point of putting words to our commitment or our covenant to each other, we hold back, and we are afraid. And I know, I'll, I'll confess, I am afraid to express something that would then put pressure on a friendship that it seems, uh, in the common way we understand it, isn't lifelong necessarily. Some of it's mobility, some of it's just sort of people change and all the rest. So I'm wondering, uh, would you have you thought about whether or not we need to press into more this area of expressing a covenant of friendship, same-sex friendship uh, with other people? Yeah, th thank you so much, uh, both for the vulnerability and for the, the really stimulating question. Um, I, I, so I, I guess two things come to mind. I, I don't think that we ought to feel that all of our Christian friendships need to attain to the same level of intimacy. So, I, I, you know, th there, there are different sorts of typologies of friendship. I, I read this book uh, as I was working on my friendship book called The Buddy System. And th this, guy, uh, this guy has a typology of different types of friends. He says there are, there are your must friends. These are the friends that, that you must call if you, if you have some you know, something you've got to tell. You know, you get pregnant, they're the first one you, you dial to, to, to tell. Um, so your, your must friends, there are your just friends, which are, no, no, no devaluing of them, but they're just friends. They're not, they're not your intimate circle. They're, they're, they're people that you would enjoy going to the sports bar and watching the game with, but you're not going to, you know, go on vacation with them. Um, and, then, and then there are the, the rust friends, which are, which are, uh, which are the, um, the friendships that are old and rusty with long familiarity. You know, you, these, are the, these are the people you've known since childhood. You can pick up where you left off. 
And then he has another fourth. I can't remember. It's, it's another rhyming dust. word. Uh, dust. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. dust friends. Yeah. <laughs> what, what is it? I think it's uh, trust friends. Trust, trust friends. Yeah. That, that Maybe they're not in the category of must, but you really do trust them. Anyway, some kind of gradation like that is, I think, helpful to have in mind. You know, I, I, I'm not, there's no, there's no Christian obligation on me to be deeply intimate friends with everybody in the body of Christ. In fact, I can't because I'm finite. You know, I'm a, I'm a creature with limited amounts of, of time and energy, um, and that's okay. But, but I think that for certain people, like you perhaps, and certainly like me, there is that craving for at least some of our friendships to, to, to take on more of a covenantal character. Um, and this is something my housemates and I have wrestled with. So I, as a single person, um, have gone through a lot of complex emotions thinking about living with them and then how painful it might be if one or the other of us decides to move. And, they, and I, I tell them, you know, for, for, for them, they don't, they don't ever have to doubt that if they are called to move, the two of them are going to go together. And that looks like something that's very, very attractive to me. I don't have that as a single person. And I, don't, I don't know that there's one other person who's so committed to me that if I feel I have to move, they move too. Um, but I wonder, I wonder if there is a place for um, reaching that level of covenantal commitment in friendship. I think there could be. Um, um, you know, one of the most moving things that I've read in the last couple of years, I, I don't know how, how many of you know the name Frederica Matthews Green. She's an Eastern Orthodox writer, popular Christian writer. Um, but she, she, uh, uh, she was talking to this young man, this, this young Orthodox man who's in his 20s, and a heterosexual guy, and his best friend is a, is a gay uh, guy, and he said, Frederica, I, I think that I want to give up marriage for myself in order to covenantally commit to my friend. I'm going to move where he moves, go where he goes, because I want to I be there for him as his support, as his friend. I want him to be able to be celibate. This is another gay uh, Orthodox guy who wants to be a Christian and celibate, and, and I want to I be part of that that for him and, and support him in that. And Frederica said, no, you can't do that. God might, God, you know, you might meet a girl and then you'd want to get married. And she said, oh my goodness. She said, why am I telling him he can't pursue celibacy when that's what I'm telling that gay man he ought to pursue? And she said, suddenly her whole mindset shifted and she thought, you know, why are, why are we not owning up to how difficult it is for a gay person to commit to a life of celibacy and, and why are we not thinking more about the kinds of covenantal bonds that we need to cultivate in order for that kind of long-term sacrifice to be possible? Now, I, I don't say that to say uh, I, that's not necessarily a model for anybody. I just, I just want to hold that out as an inspiration that perhaps some of us are called to a, a deep level of covenantal commitment and friendship that, that perhaps others of us are not. I, I'm, I'm asking myself that question. So sorry, that's a long answer, but hopefully that, that makes some sense. There are examples. I mean, I, I can even think of, for those of you who are um, members of the third here, we, there's uh, two women that we support mm. as international missionaries in, who are serving in mm. Eastern Africa who essentially have just been friendship partners in mission that's for awesome. years, and they've moved together and that's awesome. shifted uh, area focus of mm. mission together. Mm. Um, I do think that for men, especially, there is there's so few models yeah. for robust yeah. friendship, mm. um, and because you know we grew up in a context where if you 
showed affection for another guy, you know, you get made fun of in the playground. Oh, you're sure. gay or sure. you know whatever. Um, sure. That it's I think there there's just so few models right for for men especially I'm, I don't know what it's like to be a woman so apologies to <laughs> but um, for men especially there's just very few models yeah. of what intimate friendship would look like um, and therefore there's something really scary or inaccessible mm. about it. Mm. Mm. Other questions? Yeah. Um, Chris. Yeah. Thank you. I um, totally resonated when you said friendship is preparation for loving the world. Preparation is a preparation of friendships, preparation of the heart to actually loving others better. Mm. But as a pastor that is trying to get communities of people to commit and covenant together to go on mission together, I've actually found my bumping up against the wall of friendship when I talk about mission. Almost to the point where I've started talking about friendship as the enemy <laughs> of making disciples mm and inviting new people into your life because we get so invested, just like Nelson was talking about. That's beautiful. Mm. How do you take that and expand it to where you're in constantly inviting more people into that or cultivating that with people that you don't know yet? Do you, do you understand? The t I, I deeply feel the tension between friendship and making disciples, yeah. and I hate that, and I, I don't know why. I think a lot of pastors feel that way where we're trying to cultivate these thick communities mm. in, in small groups, but also calling people into mission, and, yeah. and the, there's this constant cultural tension, um, whereas the deeper you go in friendships, the less you want interferers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, every yeah. pastor I've yeah. ever talked to about this has mentioned this as a problem with small groups. People get so bonded to their small group that they don't want it tinkered with. You know, how dare you bring another couple into my small group because we're friends. You know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I think, I think what Newman is, is putting his finger on there is, so, so we, we, t we talk about one of the marks of a healthy marriage is instead of being ingrown, I mean, I think we all, we, we, we know the stereotype of the newlyweds who only want to be with each other. They, they only want to talk about each other. You know, they're, they're so lovey-dovey that, that really nobody can, they're, they're just self-enclosed. And, and we think of, of the mark of a maturing marriage as one in which that love, that love doesn't diminish. It, it, it stays deep and true, but it becomes something that's capable of hospitality, and it, it becomes something that is capable of welcoming in. And, and um, I, th I think Newman's trying to say that if, if we want to talk about a healthy friendship, it's not one in which the commitment is any less between the friends, but it's the kind of commitment that is actually shaping them to be virtuous people. It's, it's, it's knocking the hard edges off their selfishness and their, their uh, pride and their impatience. It's sanctifying. The friendship is sanctifying. And, and if, that, if that's what the friendship is about, if it's not just about this kind of ingrown, cliquish, you know, we like our little club, but if it's actually a friendship of virtue, a friendship in which virtues are being cultivated, then it's something that's going to be shaping the people as Christians. And Christians are people who... I, I mean, so here, here's one idea that may help. Aylred, in his book on, on spiritual friendship, distinguishes between relationships of love and relationships of friendship. And he says, as Christians, we're called to love literally everybody on the planet. We're called to be able to lay down our lives even for an ISIS fighter. I mean, that's what it means to be a Christian. We, hate, we love those who hate us. We, we, we love those who persecute us. We love even our enemy. But a friendship 
um, is, is a relationship in which there's mutual trust and mutual self-disclosure, and we can't have that with everyone because we can't trust everyone. We can love everyone. We're called to love everyone, but we can't, we can't have a friendship with everyone. I find that sort of helpful. Like, um, you know, when you come to a small group and say, you don't have to give up being friends, but you, you do have to commit yourself to loving more widely than, than this circle. Um, you know, and, and to be a Christian means that you, you, may, you, may, not, you may not welcome uh, a stranger into your innermost confidence. Um, you know, that, the kind of intimacy you have as this small group, that's only possible after 20 years of meeting together. You know, that's not going to be reached overnight with a stranger, of course. But ideally, that, that experience is something that's preparing you to, to love that stranger, even if you can't completely trust and, and, and have that mutual trust with a stranger. But I, I don't know. I mean, you guys who are pastors, you know more about this than I do. I, I'm, just, I'm just the theologian who tries to, <laughs> tries to talk about it. <laughs> Other questions? Yeah, Kelly. I wanted to first say that as a single woman in her 30s, it's um, more consoling than I expected to see you on stage. <laughs> so, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, well, no, I, I didn't think it would be bad, but I, I thought it would be great. <laughs> but I, um, but I, I was like, oh, this feels so nice to mm. see someone mm. put into a place where they're speaking that, mm. Um, mm. in some ways, has things in common with where I'm at. So, mm. I think. That was, I, I just really appreciate that, mm. so thank you. And then um, I'm also a seventh grade English teacher, and um, I've noticed, I teach a class of all boys, and we were recently reading the book Ender's Game, which mm. a lot of people have read, mm -hmm. and it features a close male friendship, they're both 10. Mm -hmm. And um, as soon as we started reading about this friendship, my boys in my class were just like, ew! Huh. Like they, huh. they, I, it was over and over again I had to talk with them about how this was not a gay relationship. Huh. This was a friendship. And they didn't have a grid. They don't have a grid for the idea that there could be male friendships, it seemed mm. like, that mm. are close. And mm. Which is what Corey talked about, This is seventh grade, too. you said? Seventh grade boys. Mm -hmm. Which some of that is just... Seventh grade, seventh grade boys. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but I do, um, I've also talked with my brother who's in his yeah. 30s and yeah. that movie that came out, I Love You Man, which yeah. is all about yeah. the guy looking for a friend and yeah. how hard it is to find friends that are men. And, yes. um, and my brother said like, this is my life. This is what, <laughs> this is what it's like. And, I, um, and so I just wonder kind of along with what Corey said, if, you have any idea, I mean, what can I say to seventh grade boys in a classroom to normalize male friendship? <laughs> um, but also, what can parents be saying? And also, what, um, what can we do as a culture? Because I, I really think culture is fighting hard against this idea of male friendship. Yeah. And yeah. So. Yeah. Boy, it's, it's a really good question. You know, the thing that's coming to mind is um, uh, there's some really interesting research that this sociologist named Niobe Way uh, did out of, she teaches at New York University, but she, um, she did a longitudinal study of uh, mostly non-white, uh, mostly Latino boys from the ages of about 12 to 18. Um, she's published this in a book called Deep Secrets, but um, she, she asked them about their friendships, their male friendships, and she said at age 12 and 13, these boys are like over-the-top effusive about their male best friends. Like, they say, 
my male best friend is my, they're my, they're my confidant. Like we're on the phone with each other uh, for two hours a night. Like just effusive, like intimate. Uh, my friend is the one I can tell my deepest secrets to. And as she charts, you know, there's something that happens around 16, 17, 18. They're no longer talking that way. And they're prefacing their remarks by saying, well, I'm happy to tell you about my friend, but no homo. You know, like I'm not gay. And um, she really views this as a researcher, as, as a, um, there was something that was good in their lives at 12 and 13 that's lost when they can't talk this way anymore about uh, how much they care for their male friends. And so um, I, I, I think that's a cultural crisis. You know, I, th I, think, I think boys, heterosexual boys, and homosexual boys, but heterosexual boys need close male friends, and there's there's a there's a real, uh, true human need for that and hunger for that, and so I, I feel like if I were in your shoes, I would I would feel the weight of that crisis, but also want to be looking for ways to to say, look, um, uh, you know, the experience of being gay does cause boys to want very close intimate relationships with boys. But that's not only gay boys that need that or want that. In fact, if you're straight, this is a real need for you. And it's not the same thing as being gay. Um, you know, being gay is about having romantic feelings for the same sex. But friendship is something that's not about romance. Friendship is something that's about, as Lewis said, traveling together on that road, standing shoulder to shoulder with someone, uh, engaged in a common pursuit. And it's one, of the, it's one of the chief human goods. I mean, philosophers from the time of Aristotle have said, you know, if someone lacks friends, they lack the, the, the prime human good. I mean, this is something that's been celebrated for literally thousands of years as a basic human good. And just helping them see that there's no shame in wanting that or talking about that. And, and I mean, the other, the other piece of this, which I think is kind of the, the, the challenging factor, is um, there, there are queer theorists like Michel Foucault who have argued that actually the rise, the, the prominence of homosexuality in a culture is actually, um, it, it can be detrimental to friendship. Because when, when, you've, when you've got a culture where homosexuality is, is prohibited, pro, pro, proscribed, the assumption of the culture is there's no one who's doing it. It's, it's, it's out of bounds. And therefore, space is opened up for intimacy between people of the same sex because nobody's suspecting that they're, that they're sexual. That's just not on, that's not on the table, that's, that's disallowed. But when a culture accepts homosexuality, when it, when it acknowledges and celebrates it, then suddenly it's a question that every same-sex couple has to face, is this really about sex? Is this really about romance? So I don't have a solution to that, but just to recognize that is the culture that we live in. We live in a culture that not only, that does not prohibit homosexuality, but, but acknowledges it, celebrates it, you know, puts it in movies and media, and. And, and therefore, um, that will place a burden and a challenge on straight same-sex couples that just want to have a non-sexual, non-romantic uh, friendship. And I don't, know, I don't know that there's a way to do an end run around that. I think we just have to go through that and acknowledge that is the culture that we live in. Does anybody else have any better wisdom on that than I do? That's, that's a good, it's a great question.
Yeah, so the question is, is there, is there for many straight people who grow up to be straight, is there a kind of transitional period where same-sex crushes is a, is a normal part of psychological development? Is that, that's the question? Um, I, I, I think that is common. I mean, so my story is, um, yeah, t so two things. I think my story doesn't really fit that. So I, I, I remember reading Christian books like James Dobson's Preparing for Adolescence and you know, he, he, he talks about phases that people can go through. And I, and I consoled myself with that because I really didn't want to be gay. I was nervous about being gay. I, I felt like, what is happening? You know, this is not what I, what I was hoping for. I wanted to be a normal, straight guy. But, but here I am going through this and, and consoling myself. Well, maybe this is just a phase. Um, and that didn't turn out to be the case for me. I mean, if, if anything, my same-sex desires have gotten more central to my sense of myself over the years. You know, I, I, I feel that there's been no fluctuation in the, in the degree of same-sex attractions that I experience. Um, so that's the first thing I want to say. But um, um, the second thing is I, I'm, I'm wary of two things. I'm wary of a culture in which we are encouraging people at younger and younger and younger ages to identify with sexual identity labels. I think that that is... It's worrying to me, and I'm not an educator, and I'm not a child psychologist, but it seems to me that it seems to me that there needs to be a period of childhood in which we don't try to encourage someone unnecessarily to adopt a sexual identity label. Um, there are people who, who, I think, at young ages find those helpful, but but I, I guess I I'm, I'm cautious about that, and I say that as an amateur. I'm not a professional psychologist, but I just I worry about that about that trend. On the other hand, I also worry about a trend that I see some conservative Christians adopting, which is that, oh, you know, you're talking about feeling these same-sex desires. It's probably just a phase. You know, you need to hold off labeling yourself gay. And that can be damaging, too, because that can be shaming. I feel like my experience of high school was a shaming experience in which I, I somehow absorbed from my Christian culture that this is something that's so beyond the pale that I shouldn't talk about it even with people who love me and care for me, like my parents and my youth pastor. Um, you know, this is something I ought to try to keep hidden. And that, that, that really, I don't want to be too melodramatic, but I think it damaged me. You know, I think it made me someone who spent the years from age 13 until the age of 20, which is when I came out, trying my best to appear what I was not. I was trying my hardest to appear heterosexual when I knew that I wasn't. And it, it, it caused me to hold people at arm's length. It caused me to to strategize about how to dress and how to act so that people would think I was straight. And I just, I just regret that that was my experience. I regret that it was an experience of having to, to hide and police my mannerisms and actions so as to appear different than what I was. I think it trained me to be untruthful. And, and frankly, it trained me to be unloving because I wasn't willing to like love my friends enough to confide in them and to have them love me in return. So anyway, that's just a lot of thoughts in response to that. But. Yeah, Val. Val, yeah. I appreciate, Wes, that um, your calling um, and vocation call for you to be very public about your same-sex attraction, calling yourself a celibate gay Christian and I just wonder, um, as we're promoting these intimate friendships in the church, at what point and in what way do you suggest that people confess 
their same-sex attraction if they have it because you can't have a very deep friendship if you aren't known. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really poignant and, and deeply felt question. Um, I think there are certain cases where it can actually be dangerous for someone to, to acknowledge their homosexuality. I mean, they may get kicked out of their home. I mean, I've, I've talked to gay people who they weren't even doing anything sexually. They weren't sleeping with anyone, but, but it was still, you know, they, they were asked to leave their church. They were, it, things became very difficult for them after coming out. So I, th I think you need to know your context. Um, you know, if, if that's likely to be your experience, you might, you might only want to come out to a very small trusted circle of friends who can, who can actually care for you. Um, having said that, I think in general, it is good for same-sex attracted people to be able to, to come out, if you want to use that language, to, to talk about their same-sex attraction for exactly the reasons I was just saying. So I look back on myself and think, you know, I, I invested most of my formative high school years working subconsciously, but, but working nonetheless, working hard to hold my friends far enough away that they wouldn't be able to, to see what was really going on because I was afraid. I was afraid they'd reject me or I was afraid that I'd be, you know, um, somehow written off as some, some special project that they needed to, to, to work with. And so I just think that that experience of secrecy was not spiritually healthy for me. And um, I also think, this is something not a lot of straight people think about, that um, if, if, that's, if, you're, if you're staying in the closet, if you're not talking about your same-sex attraction, it can actually cause you to become more judgmental and overly harsh toward other same-sex attracted people because you want to try to signal that I'm not one of them. So I'm going to join in some of the homophobic jokes or some of the some of the um, you know, unkind talk about the gay community because I don't want anyone to suspect that I'm actually gay. And so it can just, it can just lead to all kinds of spiritual problems. So I, I think it's generally better if people can come out, but I recognize there are exceptions to that, and, and in some communities, um, it's actually probably not best. But, but I, I had a counselor one time who told me, Wes, you need circles of appropriate transparency. <laughs> and I like that phrase. I think that's a really useful phrase. You know, not everybody has to do what I'm doing here. And if you had told me at 20 years old that I'd be doing this, I would have said, no way. Um, but you do, need, you do need your circle of appropriate transparency where you can, you can be honest. Um, one of my mentors at Wheaton said, if you don't have at least one other human being in the world that really knows the thing you're really wrestling with, then you are a walking time bomb waiting to go off. Because if you're bottling something in that you can't confide in anyone, that's not healthy for anybody, gay or straight. Everyone here should yeah. take that to heart, yeah. not just people. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that doesn't mean yeah. that doesn't mean stand up here yeah. and tell the whole church. But yeah. but find that circle of appropriate transparency where you yeah. can you can talk about it. Yeah. My dilemma is friends, Christians in the church who have decided that um, gay relationships are okay, mm -hmm. and how do I respond uh, loving them without condoning those thoughts? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it's something I think a lot about because I have dear friends in this position. You know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm friends with uh, Justin Lee, who is, is the founder and director of a group called the Gay Christian Network, and um, you know, Justin is someone who 
um, I believe, as a fellow Christian. I mean, we're, we're, we're baptized in the same triune name. Um, we, we worship the same Jesus, but he, he disagrees with me on this. He thinks that same-sex marriage is appropriate. And, and I, I just, I find, I find that to be a complicated reality of our, of our world. And I, um, I wish I had a, a neat answer to give. I mean, I, if I were a pastor, I would, I would say to Justin, um, you know, please come to our church. Our, the, Georgia, the doors of this church are wide open to you. I want you here. I won't be able to perform a same-sex wedding for you. Um, I want to be able to call you to sexual holiness, as I understand it from Scripture. So you're going to hear me over and over exhorting you to chastity. Um, you know, the Christian community is a place of discipleship. It's not a place of affirmation. So I can't affirm everything you feel to be true about yourself. I can't do that for anybody in the church, including straight people. <laughs> you know, uh, I can't affirm uh, uh, any identity that people claim. The only thing I can call people to is Christ-likeness and, and what Scripture teaches. So um, that's complicated. And, you know, there, there, there are gay Christians who will walk away if you say something like that. And you have to search your heart and say, is it because of what I said or is it because there are other things about me that are also unwelcoming? You know, my prejudice in other ways. And so I just, I continually search my heart and say, if, if people walk away from me, I want it to be because of biblical convictions, not because of any, any lingering bigotry or, or resentment or, or um, distance keeping on my part. Um, I want to be as, as close as possible to my, to my gay Christian friends as I can be without, without saying to, to them, I, I just affirm and endorse everything that you want me to endorse. And it's easier in relationship. I mean, Justin and I really respect each other. And we really care for each other. I'm, I'm going to see him next month, actually. And, um, you know, but, but in relationships where you're a little bit more of acquaintances rather than close friends like that, it's harder. So I think, I think friendship, I think, um, you know, uh, keeping the conversation open. I was telling Corey and Kevin last night at dinner, so Peter Lightheart is one of my favorite theologians. And, and he says, you know, um, we're in a very complicated time in history right now. So the, the sexual revolution in the 1960s and the development of birth control and the, the, the beginning of no-fault divorce, and um, I mean, all these changes in how we do sex in the modern world have come about in a very short amount of time. And the church is scrambling to figure out, what do we say as Christians in response to all this? And Peter Lightheart says, you know, it's almost like we're living in the early church when there was all this confusion about the Trinity. And if you remember how that happened, it took a couple hundred years for the search to, <laughs> church to sort out what they think about the Trinity. I wonder if something similar is going to happen now. It, it may be our, our great-grandchildren's generation where the church actually finally um, comes to some sort of um, conciliar consensus about this is, this is what Christians believe about sex. And it took us a couple hundred years after the the volcano of the sexual revolution to sort all that out. Yeah. Not the most encouraging thought. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so just wait a couple hundred years. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Stephen, we'll give you the last word here, buddy. Last last word. Yeah. Um, I just want to say how, um, one, um, how great it is to be part of a church that would host something like this. 
And I want to take my hat off the third for giving you and a three voice. Other and three <laughs> other churches. And three other churches. The other is um, your, your comments just resonate on so many levels. Um, and I wish 25 years ago, 35 years ago, there was a place in a church for a conversation like this. Hmm. Um, typically, people who struggled with their sexuality went to Bible school or theology or, 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 or monasteries. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. yeah. And the love of God and sexual brokenness have been great struggles for a lot of people. I read yeah. Henry Nouwen. Yeah, um, yeah, I love um, Nouwen. So we're, there's, we're littered uh, with it. Um, and friendship has just been profound. Mm. Um, someone once said, how do you get a, a bone out of a dog's mouth? Um, you give him a steak. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And yeah. friendship and relationship has been that piece that's allowed me to put the bone down. Um, the other one is the great theologian Lady Gaga, who says, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 "Born that way, we were all born in sin and brokenness." Yeah. Yeah. So there's some real truth to that. Yeah. Um, what I've found is God has called me. What He's given me is the greater thing. He's given me Himself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I loved your last book, uh, Wash and Waiting. Uh, God said, "Wait." And God's not calling me or anyone else to anything that He's not calling other people to. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to seminary, went to school, and I found it a very unwelcoming place mm. because of the shame. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I told the headmaster when I applied to school what my background was, and yeah. he said, keep it to yourself, mm. get married, yeah. and we'll get you a big church. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Play yeah. the part, yeah. and you can yeah. be huge. And yeah. God said, yeah. I've called you to me, not to do something for me. Yeah. And I walked away from it all, and you know what? I lost hundreds of people mm. who could not mm. see out of the paradigm. Mm. I, and I told you it was loneliness, and it's why people leave here mm. and run to the world, because yeah. it was more accepting, yeah. it was more loving, it was more embracing, it was hollow, yeah. Um, yeah. but there was a place to be. And yeah. God had yeah. to lure me back yeah. to him. God's not called me, he's called me to the church, but yeah. he's called me to himself. Yeah. Amen. Um, and I'm willing to have a dialogue with people when necessary. I yeah. feel that it's very, it's not safe to get up. I couldn't yeah. do that 25 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. All I was hearing was condemnation and mm. to God hate. Mm. And the last thing was, you said something very profound. Um, I believe that God has, um, just like being black, mm. just like not having a dad, mm. God has taken those things and he's made those gifts for me to serve yeah. to other people. Yeah. 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 My sexual brokenness has become a gift mm. in 2017 mm. because I have mm. something mm. To, to, to offer mm. um, when someone comes to me. And we live in a society that's just broken. My sexual identity is not who I am. Mm. First and foremost, mm. I'm a child of the king. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Greg. Thank Amen. you, Stephen. Thank you. So we'll give, we'll give uh, Reverend Jenkins the, <laughs> the, last, the last word here. Let's, yeah. let's pray. Uh, Father, um, so thankful for Wesley and for his, um, your mighty work of grace in his life and his willingness to share his story, um, which has just been so moving and helpful for all of us here. We do pray that you continue to bless and flourish his life, his friendships, his ministry, his teaching. Lord, we, we pray for, for all of our churches that are represented here today, that we would become places um, that would model this countercultural vision of friendship and that it would be a place where everyone, whether married or single, whether 
gay or straight, whether um, clear or confused, uh, would find a place of welcome and deep friendship and love, and that we might be a place of witness to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Mm. That whether in whatever vocation, whatever whether we find ourselves single or married, we would all live lives that are clearly pointing to Jesus in the reign that he has brought and is bringing. So we pray that you would uh, renew all of us um, and help us to better fulfill the mission of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank, Thank you, you all. So would um, encourage you uh, to check out Wes's uh, books. He has two, two, two books, um, Washed and Waiting, which is more about his own personal journey. It's a beautiful memoir um, in Second Spiritual Friendship. Um, also, don't forget, if you're interested in the group um, Hundredfold, there's some flyers in the commons table back there. Um, thanks for coming. Take a donut. Mm-hmm.